welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today's guest needs little introduction because Hunter Walk is one of the friendliest and most accessible venture capitalists working in tech today. But as you know by now, if I have a VC on the show, that probably means they've done some interesting venturing in addition to their capitaling. And that's certainly the case with Hunter, who in this episode will share with us three very interesting stories about things we actually haven't had a chance to cover much yet on this show. Second Life, Google AdSense, and YouTube. Small bit of housekeeping here. By the time you are listening to this, my second child has either been delivered or is about to be so. And so either way, it might be a couple of weeks before I am able to release a new episode. I'll keep you updated on Twitter if you're interested. In the meantime, please enjoy this amazing conversation with Hunter Walk. Hunter Walk, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so you're not, just to touch on background for a little bit, you, you never trained as an engineer. No. I call myself sort of technically curious, technically proficient, but not technically trained. <laughs> you were a, a history major. I was a history major, and my you know, sort of entryway to tech as a kid wasn't through command line programming, it was actually more through desktop publishing, graphic design. I was kind of always the you know, junior high, high school editor of the newspaper, and I remember watching desktop publishing, computer software, transform that from something where I was physically laying out articles on uh, large sheets of paper to just clicking, dragging, uh, and being able to you know, do it all virtually. Um, so you, you got your, your BA at Vassar um, and then an MBA from Stanford, but um, uh, you also had a public access show at Vassar? I did. So I was multi-platform uh, in, my, in, my, in my early years. I, um, I was sports editor at the Vassar paper, uh, which you know, is, is somewhat oxymoronic given that uh, you know, Vassar is not known for their athletic pursuits. But um, I uh, decided that it would be fun to interview some of my friends who are on the various sports teams and uh, not just do it for print, but do it for video. So went down to my local uh, Comcast, uh, got a time slot, and um, had a half-hour uh, TV show uh, for a couple of months. I just thought that, that there was a nice little historical rhyme there because now you would have a YouTube channel. We'll, we'll get to that. Exactly. <laughs> the, the, whenever I tell that story, people say, you know, well, did you upload that to YouTube? And I said, no, those, those tapes are safely buried in my parents' basement, never to see the light of day. <laughs> um, so one thing that uh, everybody always asks you about, and I can't resist also, um, you had an early uh, job or internship uh, with, with the Conan O'Brien show. Yeah, so that's connected to the sort of public access uh, in the sense that I uh, was having a blast doing sort of this low, uh, you know, zero budget, low rent public access. And I wanted to see if that was, you know, single A baseball. I wanted to see what the pro leagues were like. I had had an internship at NBC two summers earlier in a, in a you know, different division, but used that to kind of wrangle my way into the production side of the business. And um, spent my senior year of college uh, coming into the city uh, from Vassar, which is in Poughkeepsie, about 90 minutes north of Manhattan. Coming to the city three days a week to work on uh, Late Night with Conan O'Brien. It was its second season. Uh, it was on at 1.30 in the morning. We taped, of course, you know, closer to sort of 5.36 at night, but uh, was still finding its footing. Was only on a quarterly renewal cycle, so basically we, the team there started sort of you know, each quarter not knowing if there would be a show three months from now. 
Um, but it was a blast. I worked in the uh, research team, which essentially meant I uh, researched celebrity guests, wrote interview questions, and uh, tried to manufacture spontaneity. I think I, I heard also you, you did stand-ins because you're about the same height as Conan. <laughs> yeah. So the, of the of the sort of you know intern crew, I was one of the taller ones. So uh, even though most of my time was spent behind the scenes, every once in a while, uh, you know, Hunter Walk, could you come to the you know studio floor? And it was essentially I had to stand on an X. Uh, tape X on the uh, you know for ten minutes while they got the lighting right. I I, I I met him once, and aside from the hair, the thing that really stood out to me was like, God, he's tall. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm six three, and I think he had probably had you know an inch and a half, two inches on me. Yeah. Um, so, could you were you thinking of maybe going into entertainment, like um, doing TV or, or or arts or media or something? I like really that? was. Um, at that point in my life, I was trying to figure out if I was left brain or right brain. My mother, uh, artist and art teacher, father did more traditional business, and I was trying to figure out which one of them I most took after, which had me moving back and forth between you know, more creative pursuits like the time on Conan or uh, you know, being a history major and writing a thesis on the first national, you know, national women's magazine in the US, stuff like that and wanting to learn how Microsoft Excel worked. I was kind of the only kid at Vassar who got ad age delivered to the dorm, and I was fascinated by, you know, sort of the advertising side of media and brands and things like that. Um, it wasn't really until I started to, you know, got out west for grad school at Stanford and started to embrace uh, consumer tech as a profession, not just sort of a nerdy hobby, that I realized um, it had room for people who were both left brain and right brain thinkers. I didn't have to decide one path or the other. Um, but yeah, there was definitely a point, like if I think of my sort of career decision tree, mm. um, the biggest split, the most impactful split was, do I stay on Conan and try to be in entertainment, media, journalism for a living? Mm -hmm. um, or do I go down a, a different path, which at the time was management consulting, which I did for a few years, but you know, ultimately more kind of a, a, a business builder uh, you know, company route. I that's a. I feel like that's a weird answer. That Excel was sort of your path into tech, but um, oh. Excel is a. It's just a beautiful interface on uh, you know a bunch of uh, you know command line programs. I just did um, one of the Tesla co-founders, and they were talking about modeling the company when they're you know doing the R and D stage, and and he's like, we did it all on Excel. Yeah. He's like, not no no 3D modeling. No, no we just, the, the math works. <laughs> Excel is still, you know, sort of uh, maybe gloriously or tragically sort of the most important enterprise software tool out there. And just, you know, for context, uh, so I was born in 1973, which means I'm you know, 42 turning 43 this year. So when I say, you know, second year of Conan, Vassar, I was class of 95. You know, a lot of the things that if I was coming out even just 10 years later, 2005, I wouldn't have ended up in management consulting. I wouldn't have been talking about Excel. Um, it's maybe I still would have been wrestling with the right brain left brain challenge. I don't think that was of a of a time frame, but you know, if, especially if you didn't come up through the ranks as you know sort of an engineer or from a family that was deep in the sciences, you know, uh, you went into management consulting or you went into investment banking. Uh, and I knew I didn't want to be a banker, so uh, I thought uh, the problem solving nature of management consulting might be interesting for a few years. Well, it sounds like seeing as how you only did it for a few years, that maybe. Doing management consulting convinced you that that wasn't the path for you either. Well, eventually. I figured that out within the first year, and mm -hmm. then used my remaining sort of time there to um, uh, kind of steer my career in a different direction, um, which you know ultimately what led me uh, to be out on the West Coast. Not even just from Stanford, but I had worked on a project in San Francisco 
um, with my firm for about nine months, and that opened my eyes to everything that was going on in the Bay Area um, and uh, started to sort of set a path to get back there. So I'm going to have you tell us a little bit about Linden Labs, but first, um, I think you do some a little bit of time with, at Mattel, but what leads you to, to Linden Labs and around 2000, I think? Yeah, yeah, so I went out to grad school in 1998. The MBA program is a two-year program, finished up 2000. Um, you referenced Mattel. I mean, that was really the first piece in sort of uh, putting me at Linden. Uh, I'd always wanted to work for a toy company. My dad, uh, when I was a kid, worked for JCPenney, sort of you know, corporate in New York. And uh, when I'd go visit him, if he had a meeting or something before we'd get together, he'd drop me off at the floor where the you know, sort of the toy testers worked. They would decide what toys JCPenney should carry in its catalog and its retail store. God, this is the best job in the world. I want to work you know, for a toy company at some point. And so uh, going to spend a summer at Mattel, specifically working with Mattel Interactive on a buy, build, or partner video game strategy, mm. re-immersed me in that world. And what struck me during that summer, summer 99, was the changing nature of play and of video games. And it was moving from a you know, sort of fully scripted, non-malleable world that you would play through, you know, which I had sort of growing up with my Super Nintendo and that type of stuff, to uh, a collaborative environment or competitive environment you could play together, and increasingly a world that was responsive to your touch at this time. Sort of The Sims was a big PC game, and you were able to feel like you were actually changing the the path of the world you were in. Some of the first sort of massively multiplayer games like Ultima Online and things were also coming out. You know, sort of come, come for the game, stay for the community type of stuff. And so I got very excited and interested in how, you know, video games and interactive entertainment were being changed by the web. Um, so when I was finishing up grad school in 2000, I was talking with Yahoo Games and Electronic Arts and the different folks in the Bay Area, but um, just felt like they, they weren't looking into the future radically enough. Um, you know, it was sort of the, hey, instead of playing checkers against the computer, you can play checkers against somebody else. And that was cool, uh, undoubtedly. But uh, I happened upon a, a small company getting started uh, in San Francisco called London Lab. And the vision they had for, uh, you know, sort of Legos on steroids or, you know, uh, ultimately probably the most evocative sort of success story, um, you know, was something what Minecraft sort of turned into. Um, and right. they were creating this virtual world called Second Life, and it you know, was some of the smartest people I'd met and trying something really audacious, and so I, I left in. Could you, since we haven't touched on it on the show at all, can you give us just briefly like the, the, the origin story of um, Linden Lab? Is it, is it just Phil Rosedale? Yeah. And he came from Real Networks. Yep. And so then what, um, what was his vision? What was he trying Absolutely. to do? Absolutely. So uh, the company's called Linden Lab. The product is Second Life. It's... You know, still now around, it's been profitable for a number of years. Uh, jokingly, you know, you could claim that Second Life is more profitable than Twitter, Uber, Airbnb ever have been. Um, but Philip, uh, amazing guy, uh, had come uh, from Real Networks where he was running Real Video. Uh, he had started an, an early sort of video conferencing startup that uh, Real had purchased that became kind of the backbone of Real Video. He was a CTO of Real Networks. And for a long time, uh, Philip and sort of his wild-eyed imagination had been thinking about a world that people could con uh, construct together, a simulation where you could change the world around you. A little bit Snow Crash, you know, in Metaverse, right. a little bit, um, you know, sort of a, a, 
you know, almost religious type of notion of a world uh, not created, you know, uh, by you know a, a deity, but created by the people in it. Um, and uh, he felt like it was finally the right time. And by right time, it was a combination of broadband beginning to emerge and be deployed. This was one of the first experiences that required broadband. Uh, graphics cards. It was the age of the NVIDIA GeForce 2 and um, you know sort of the first GPU cards in $500, $750 Dell desktops that could power high performance gaming simulation environments. Mm -hmm. uh, and also I think um, the right time in his life. He had made some money when Real went public, felt like you know, he could now turn to something. He was, you know, not just the founder, but one of the first sizable investors, but was time to sort of sail his ship back to something that he'd always wanted to build. And so called Linden Lab for uh, two reasons. Linden, because we were on Linden Alley in Hayes Valley in San Francisco, and Lab because Philip had always wanted a lab. Mm -hmm. And so the first product was Second Life. It was the idea of an immersive environment. It started out the company, which when I joined was Philip, three to four engineers, and then I was the first uh, non-engineer at the company. They had started out, and actually I, I think still probably hold some patents, on haptic interfaces. So if you're going to project yourself into a fully immersive environment, the initial idea was that you know, maybe a mouse and a keyboard are you know, uh, barriers to being fully immersed. Or, or not the best tool. Yeah. yeah. So we had a fully functioning uh, sort of rig that you'd step into. He had a, a glove type of interface. Uh, you know, had sort of a full full machine shop. You know, on, on premise. And what happened was, as the team and most of the hardware work was done before I got there, as the team started realizing that yes, this was interesting, but if you didn't, maybe you needed to build the world first. That there weren't worlds being created that these interfaces would make sense in. So let's actually build the world, and then think about interfaces. And so they started to uh, create what became Second Life, which was a uh, fully immersive uh, simulation um, of, a, of, a, of a geography that should feel and look very much like the Earth. It had trees, land, so on and so forth, and was spread out over servers. So the idea was that each, you know, this was when you were sort of starting to get the decreasing price of like pizza box servers, which you, you know, they called pizza box servers because they'd be up at the side of a, right. side of a pizza box. And for each server you racked, you could run... It was either 16 or 20 acres of simulation. And part of the IP that this company had built was you could, the, the land was contiguous. As a user, you wouldn't know when you were actually being transferred from one server to another. Um, and it was shared. So as opposed to shards, uh, which would be sort of a term for like in the gaming world where each instance of you know a game would hold so many users and then you'd create you know a uh, uh, exact replica of that same game environment to hold the next thousand users, the next thousand users. This was one world that, as it got larger, you just kept adding more servers, cheap servers, yeah. to create a larger and larger contiguous world. Um, we would debate uh, what would happen when the first users should step into this world. On one end of the spectrum, you could imagine Disney World. They should find a set of fully formed experiences that we had built that would be fun in and of themselves, and then they could start building other things using you know, sort of uh, primitive kind of geography, 3D modeling tools, scripting language, but fundamentally there need to be there something for them to do. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you could think of it as virtual Burning Man, mm, a right. community that's based upon 
um, you know, the need to collaborate in order to do anything. Exist. But also we should point out that one of the main features was also the creation of your avatar and right. your ability to make your avatar be whatever you want. So you're represented in this world by you know, a humanoid avatar, um, highly customizable, both in terms of appearance, skins, things you could upload into the world to dress yourself. So you design in a Photoshop maybe and then you know, upload something. It wasn't just uh, you know, pick from this menu of virtual shirts you could wear and also highly sculptable and slider bars that can move all these things. We did have some constraints because we used to say like, well, it's kind of a prisoner's dilemma. If, if you can be as large as you want, everybody's going to be large. And like, that doesn't make sense. So, you know, we sort of said you could only be so big, you could only be so small, um, but within that, you know, highly, highly customizable. And what we found was it was one of the most interesting areas of, a lot of people started doing research on Second Life once it got going because it was just sort of this fascinating laboratory of kind of a different type of online behavior. And we found that people, when they had the chance to create a representation of themselves in that fashion, they would, some people would go down the path of realistic. They wanted to look exactly like they did um, in the outside world. And some people would want to do unrealistic, uh, at least in terms of unrealistic compared to sort of how they looked. And then unrealistic would split into two paths. One would be your typical, um, uh, maybe it's a cultural uh, uh, symbol of attractive. So if you wanted to be a, a female avatar, you'd have unrealistic proportions and muscles and long blonde hair. And if you were a male avatar, you know, you'd, you'd be all hulked out or stuff mm -hmm. like that. But there were a, a, a not insignificant minority who went down the unrealistic sort of repulsive slash fantastic path. Um, they wanted to, you know, be as fat as you could be, or as skinny as you could be, or have an eagle's head, or have an eagle's head, or you know, because we had different attach, we called them attach points. So you could actually sort of create, you know, sort of uh, uh, ornament ornament yourself in a way that almost you would be like putting on a costume at Disney World. You could become a, a furry or a whatever. Right, yeah. A, a, yeah. People would do amazing anime costumes. So we, we started to see a real, real uh, expressiveness um, that. Uh, started to answer a lot of questions of, if you could look like anything, mm -hmm. what would you look like and why? Well, so the obvious, you know, you, thinking of it in 2016, you're thinking of now the move to VR, and this is an antecedent to that. But also putting it in the context, because um, Second Life has this cultural moment where all of a sudden it explodes into the consciousness and you know, brands are trying to put <laughs> car dealerships in Second Life and people are, there's a whole economy that develops. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I think it sort of is forgotten as sort of on this cusp of when Web 2.0 happens that this is in that sort of milieu of, of you know, letting the users, mm. you know, free. and Right. And I mean, you had mainstream publications saying, will we all be living a Second Life? I think we had sort of these two waves, one small and one large, of... Um, bumping our heads on the mainstream. Uh, the first occurred while I was there. It was as we were building and once we went into our public beta. Um, it really, uh, uh, I think, uh, because of the, the metaverse nature of it, the creative nature of it, a lot of technologists recognized it for what it was, a really, really hard technical problem, an amazing simulation, and wanted to try it out. We had Time Magazine called us one of the best inventions of the year. Um, you know, at a time where there weren't necessarily, not everybody was an angel investor, right? Uh, uh, 
Second Life during its first few years couldn't really raise money from traditional venture investors. People thought it was crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but really significant tech luminaries like uh, Mitch Kapoor, who founded Lotus, Ray Ozzy, um, who uh, was also at Lotus, um, but then went on to found some other companies Microsoft acquired. Um, Mitch uh, was working with you guys at one point. Yeah, right? Mitch, well, Mitch was the sort of primary investor and board chair, so he was very okay. hands-on for a while. Um, later, Pierre Midiar from eBay became an investor. Um, Jeff Bezos became an investor. So you had this set uh, set of you know really really impressive, far out thinkers, who uh, you know almost as like a crowdfunded project. You know, just the the donor level was in the seven digits, <laughs> right, yeah. as opposed to you know here you know a fifty dollar Kickstarter yeah, bonus. Yeah. Um, and so that was the first wave. Then it sort of went dark for a while. Because we, you know, when I talked before earlier about are we Burning Man or are we Disney World, we ultimately decided we were Burning Man. Mm -hmm. So you needed the early true believers to sort of build out this world, or there was nothing for the next wave of adopters to um, to actually experience. And building out a world is hard, even a virtual one. Um, uh, you know, we had an in-world 3D modeling tool, an in-world scripting language. You know, you mentioned sort of VR. We were also sort of a precursor to you know Bitcoin with a virtual currency called Linden Dollars that you could actually, uh, we powered an exchange. We wouldn't sell you dollars per se, um, but you could um, transact, you could sell your dollars, your virtual dollars to another user for real dollars and we would take like a 2% cut. Um, and so it had a real functioning economy as well. I remember there was lots of studies about that. And which was one of the drivers too of that next wave you're talking about where um, you had people who were uh, making, you know, millions of dollars in Second Life by building up businesses and converting those virtual dollars to real dollars. You had businesses starting to um, buy plots of land. You know, think of a plot of land in Second Life as the equivalent of a URL. So they were buying you know, URLs in Second Life that just happened to be physical simulations and Dell wanted to, you know, Dell built a virtual replica of Michael Dell's dorm room and then a Dell store that you could go buy computers. People would re launch press release, you know, press releases. The first insurance agency to set up in Second Life. Newt Gingrich gave a speech. People were giving concerts. Um, everyone wanted it to be something that it actually wasn't, but the hype um, promoted it to people who the experience was not approachable. <laughs> they were mm. not ready for it. And so it sort of had its moment in the sun and then the inevitable wave of disappointment um, when people found that sort of living in a self-organized virtual world wasn't the same as a, The Sims or wasn't uh, a, you know, 3D version of MySpace. Right. Well, actually, so again, from the perspective of 2016, it's impossible not to look back at it and think, well, this is what Minecraft has become. Mm -hmm. So is there... Is there anything you could see that was it just too early? Is there something Minecraft did different that found success or? or... Yeah, I think so. I think the biggest difference, um, and I this is I debate this with people regarding VR as well. Now, does immersive does an immersive simulated environment need to be photorealistic? Ah. Does it need to spend so much? computational power on gr on gravity, on wind, on clouds. Because that's what Linden Lab was trying. That's what Linden Lab went down the path. Philip and others uh, strongly believed that in order for you to suspend disbelief, in order to create a world that was appealing, we needed to mimic a lot of the things that were in this world. And so 
we had a real sort of like dynamic fluid pattern, you know, managing the winds and clouds that would, you know, uh, be generated and then be moved by that wind. We had a, a third party physics engine that we integrated and constantly spent a lot of cycles on. We spent a lot of um, resources on texture streaming and progressive level of detail. So as you got closer and closer, you know, it would be like looking at a brick wall in real life. You wanted that level of detail. But what you're saying vis-a-vis -vis VR is that maybe you don't have to focus on those things. You can go a long way with a lower base level of... Minecraft created... Anybody who you know, has spent time in Minecraft you know, knows that you can create a true emotional connection to an avatar, to an environment, to a simulation without it having to be photorealistic. Mm -hmm. And I think good designers, good game designers, good designers in general, are thinking about what they're trying to achieve as that sense of place, that emotional connection. And it's unclear to me that the best vector for Second Life was to take the path we did of that photorealism, but it's what we believed and what we doubled down on. And it was ultimately, I think, part of the constraints because uh, we spent so much time perfecting that, we didn't spend as much time thinking about the anthropology of it. Mm. We spent so much of the computing resources on it that you could only put 50 uh, human avatars on a particular simulator because beyond that, it would slow down. If we had thought about it differently, maybe we would have optimized for saying, you know what, this isn't fun unless it's dense. Unless you can have you know, a crowd, a, thousand <laughs> a concert, yeah. a thousand people, this is never gonna happen. But we wanted trees and clouds and gravity. Yeah. Um, so you do mention that um, you, you're not there very long, maybe three or four years. Three years, yeah. Three so years. from, from you know, near the beginning through uh, maybe a quarter or two after commercial launch in summer of 2003. So we opened it up in summer of 2003, uh, basically took our beta and started charging people. Mm -hmm. um, it was great. We had internally at that time, we were probably about 15 people or so. And we held a little like sort of, you know, internal contest. Uh, what percentage of the beta users do you think are going to convert? And at the time, you know, maybe we had 5,000 beta users. And on one end of the spectrum, Philip Rosedale, our founder, who's an incre you know, incredible technologist, incredible optimist. In fact, he's building a company now called High Fidelity that's really sort of Second Life 2.0 in the VR space. But, you know, he looks and he sort of says 110%, which is essentially believing that, like, every beta user is going to convert and, you know, one out of every 10 is going to bring a friend, you know. Uh, then he had some folks who had, you know, come up with other numbers. I was on the other end of the spectrum. I said 5% because mm. I felt like it still wasn't a very compelling place. A lot of people were, the engagement numbers, you know, people had accounts, but they weren't, you know, all living in this world, that type of stuff. And I ended up being right. And I just remember this. Philip sort of had a mo. I could see there was like a 30-second pause where sort of there was a little bit of disappointment. And then, you know, seeing the cup half full as you, you have to if you're doing these long projects, he said, well, I guess if any one of us had to be right, I'm glad it's the business guy. <laughs> so he's like, okay, your, mo you know, like, yeah. your modeling is probably going to be correct. You got this right. right. Now let's get back to work and build a world. Yeah. And I remember that even as a moment of, you know, in many ways let down. Oh, geez, this might, be, this might not be working exactly the way that we had hoped. It's going to be a long road ahead. I remembered that as sort of the type of perseverance and resilience that you need if you're going to you know, take a moonshot, if you're going to create something that's going to encounter skepticism, <laughs> uh, stopping points where you choose to stop or you choose to go on. And I think that's ultimately, you know, sort of 
uh, benefited me when I was at Google, and certainly you know benefits me now as an as a you know sort of seed stage investor. Right. So what what leads you to Google? Did they recruit you or? Um, well, uh, at the time, so one of the implications of Second Life five percent conversion as opposed to one hundred percent ten percent conversion. We scaled up to about thirty people, and then we had this moment uh, thirty uh, employees, mm -hmm. and then we had this moment where we said we can either uh, try to raise more money, but frankly, at the time, you know, it wasn't going to be an attractive venture, up, you know, opportunity yet. Benchmark later later came in, um, a great venture investor, and, and made a sizable commitment. Um, but at the time, you know, we it wasn't it wasn't working, and we needed we needed more runway. So we cut from thirty to twenty people, and the job that I had at the time, which was um, some product, some marketing, and essentially the highest nail problem, whatever needed to get done, that job was disappearing. We were reducing to bare bones. Um, and so looking around and seeing, well, what does this company need at this time and what does this next phase look like? Um, there wasn't a real fit for me. So, you know, I essentially, you know, for all intents and purposes, got, you know, got laid off, right? Um, and one of the things though that I was really excited about, we had built a social graph within Second Life. Um, without knowing it, that's certainly not what we called it. We called it a contact list. Uh -huh. It's much, you know, like it was like a chat, you know. Um, and you could connect with people, and if you friended one another, you could communicate via private channel. Otherwise, you literally had to be within standing distance of somebody to do public chat. And we did that, and we saw how much activity was taking place with sort of friending and private channel chat. And I saw. This was Friendster was just starting to pop. There was a site called Six Degrees Rise R Y Z E that was that Tribe was doing so much around that time. And Mark Pincus was yeah. just starting Tribe. So I went and I talked to Jonathan Abrams at Friendster. I met with uh, Philip Rosedale, knew Mark Pincus. He introduced me to Mark, and I was starting to get excited about something like that. Um, but having uh, gone to Stanford for grad school, I knew a bunch of people who were at Google. And they basically reached out and said, hey, I hear you're thinking about your next thing. Um, you know, what, what, what intrigued you about Second Life? Because that's a really compelling project. I said, well, it was a hard, I, you know, some of the smartest engineers I ever met were there. It was a hard technical challenge, but it was one that I felt like you had to understand ultimately that people were gonna use this product and so you can't just get obsessed with the code. You have to think about how do we wanna change, you know, how do we wanna change the world? Um, and I wanted, I thought it had the possibility to touch not 5,000, not 50,000, not 500,000 people, but to touch 5 million, 50 million, 500 million people ultimately. That's all they had to hear. Right. They're like, we've got some stuff to show you. Because <laughs> at the time, Google was... This is 2003? 2003. Yeah. So Google was search. This was, uh, Google had not yet gone public. They had not yet filed. So nobody really knew that there was a business here. This is before Gmail. This was before, this before Maps. Before Gmail, yeah. before Maps. All they had was a page at google.com with a brightly colored, childlike logo and the best, fastest web search out there mm -hmm. amongst 40 search engines, right? right? Dogpile, Alta Vista, yeah, Excite, yeah. Da, 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 da. They started to tell me a little bit more, just a little bit, because they were always very secretive about hey, what you're seeing right here is really just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot going on here. And there's some really, really smart people here. And I'll tell you what got me. What got me was coming in the lobby and staring at the scrolling list of search queries mm. and looking and saying, my God, this is 
This is like peering inside the mind of the whole of world. The whole world. <laughs> yeah. And you know, as somebody who really started using the internet in '93, '94, with sort of news groups, and then the beginnings of a, of a browser, and both loved information, loved creating. Um, you know, I basically turned. I said, "You don't even have to pay me. Just let me have access to this data. Like this data is fascinating. I'm going to understand the world in a really, uh, you know, singular way." Um, fortunately, uh, they ended up paying me as well. But um, <laughs> you're a bad negotiator. That's yeah, right. bad negotiator. So uh, I had, you know, some people at the time. Google was has been and always will be, I think, sort of a quirky company. And some people had really, really long, prolonged interview processes where, like. Google would seem to be hot on you, then they'd go dark for a few months, then they'd come back, and like, or you know, what's your GPA, all this type of stuff. I had completely the opposite. And I don't, and I, you know, not because I'm special or anything, I think I just hit them at the right time. Mm. So they said, we have three, three jobs we want you to talk to us about. I was there nine of 10 days over the course of two weeks. Hold it, hold it was still in one building, so it basically was the same receptionist. She's like, do you work here yet? <laughs> I'm like, I don't think so, but maybe soon. Right. Um, I got offers for two of the three jobs. Um, I hemmed and hawed a little bit because Google was about a thousand people already, which to me was huge. I was just at a 20, 30 person company where I got to go to board meetings. But my mother said, who you know doesn't know anything about the business opportunity, doesn't know anything about the technology, just she listens to me describe things and helps me say like, oh, that sounds like you or not. She's like, you keep talking about how smart these people are and how cool the information is. Like, why don't you just go? If you don't like it, leave. Like, nobody's gonna fault you. I said, okay, you're right, I need to get over myself. And I went and I stayed for nine years. So you start um, with AdSense, right? I start on AdSense and I start on the, not the product side, but more of the business side. So, um, so AdWords had started before AdSense, right? Yep, about within the year prior. Right. Um, so uh, what are you doing, at what stage is the AdSense product at this point? Yeah, so AdSense had launched in beta about six months earlier. Uh -huh. And at the time, it had launched as a beta for um, sort of mid and long tail online publishers. So small, you know, let's call them like mom and pop sites, emerging sites that if they wanted to monetize, didn't have their own sales force. And at the time, were forced to sort of use banner ad networks to make any money. Most of those ads weren't relevant for the average user. They were loud, graphical. And also, they weren't obnoxious. really friendly to smaller sites. Weren't that, friendly to yeah. smaller sites. You'd get the bottom of the barrel, no responsiveness. If you like, you know, hey, why you know an ad that was serving malware popped up? You know, how mm -hmm. can I stop that from happening again? No answer. All right. that type of stuff. And so Google, in its sort of notion that um, uh, ads, if they were targeted and, and informative and you Con know, weren't contextual. contextual yeah could be content essentially, had used the same technology that they had built for Google.com, how do we understand what this web page is about, and the same ad network that they had built with AdWords, do you want to advertise against relevant search results, and essentially put that into a unit on a web page that you could just easily deploy. And so if you went to a website and that you were reading about scuba diving, instead of having a, uh, you know, uh, smack the monkey blinking banner ad um, that nobody clicked on and thus you got very little money, you saw one, two, or three text ads. Scuba gear for sale, ebay.com. Uh, Want to book a tri trip to Belize? Best scuba diving, you know, in the southern hemisphere. Click over to here. Or, you know, uh, other things that were relevant, not to the 
not necessarily to who was viewing it. It wasn't personalized to the person on the other side of the computer yet. It eventually got there. They weren't using your cookies. But what is this page about? Right. And so having launched and over the six months being a self-service tool, um, I was part of a small team that started to think about, well, how do we bring this to some of the larger sites, CNN, New York Times, sites that do have salespeople, but also don't always sell 100% of their inventory or um, are subject to using these same kind of untargeted banner ad networks. And can we start making ads that are relevant enough and get enough advertisers in the auction, because it was driven by an auction similar to the way AdWords is on Google.com, to make a lot of money for these websites. And um, so, so I did that. That's what I basically did for my first year. Help, was targeting help these larger publishers. Build and, and yeah, help build the pro- help from the business side, build the product and roll out to large publishers that we actually had to pay. We had to buy the, in most cases, buy the ad space. The inventory. We buy the inventory yeah. from the large sites for the first six months, nine months, year to prove, because they were like, we don't know you. We're, we'd otherwise sell this. You want the space? Buy it from us. Mm-hmm. What, what we were betting on were two things. One, that we could get enough ad- advertisers were growing fast enough on the platform that in a sort of you know, second-order Dutch, au- Dutch auction, you know, the, the winner pays a penny more you know, than the, than the second-highest bid, that we could get enough competition to sort of drive up the cost per click. Um, and training on these sites, we could include our, get our relevancy to the point where a year in, we could say, you know what? We're not renewing our guarantee but you see that this is outperforming every other ad platform, right. here's the rev share we want to offer you. So you arbitrage it until eventually it gets good enough that... Exactly. So we could pull, you know, built the scaffolding with dollars yeah. and then pulled away the scaffolding and let the algorithm do its thing. Wait, I, I, I made the point earlier about um, with um, Second Life and creating the platform and the, the juice for Web 2.0, because um, I remember this really clearly that uh, AdSense especially laid a foundation for what would become web 2.0 mm-hmm. because not only is this you know part of the you know blogs are becoming a thing and so many blogs you know used adsense and things like that but you know there was that brief period of time where you could raise money for startups where part of your business plan was well we'll put up ads right. in. you know like the most famous being most successfully <laughs> would be plenty of fish you know mm-hmm. um, but so creating that sort of financial infrastructure oh, that yeah. allowed web to Well, if you, you know, if I mentioned that, you know, the thing that struck me on sort of day one of visiting Google as a potential employee was the scrolling list of search queries. Once I got there and started the AdSense team, the next amazing trove of data I had access to was, oh my God, this site, this community site about dogs is making $500,000 a year. Mm-hmm. You started to see really where time and attention was going on the web. And you know that informed my work at YouTube. It informed some of the investments that we've made. Um, but it also you know taught me that y- you don't have to be you know you you can start from scratch as a content creator and build and build a business. And the connective tissue for me between Second Life AdSense and YouTube was I really like technology as a tool of creation. I like it as a taking place within communities for both audience and collaboration, not just sort of you know uh, something you do by yourself. And then I think it's inherent upon these platforms to create economic models that allow the creators to benefit from their work. So Second Life had an economy. You could make money if you chose. It wasn't a world about making money, but you could. AdSense, as you mentioned, like at the time, you know, there were eight blogging platforms. You could you know, roll your own site. 
it was really uh, AdSense was the back end, the, the monetization engine for web publishing. And then YouTube, of course, was all of those things just with video as opposed to web pages. So, um, like for me, uh, even though sometimes you know it's not like I, I spent 12 years doing the same thing, uh, there's definitely a relationship between you know Second Life, AdSense, and YouTube in you know the impact uh, that I think technology can have and the role that I wanted to play in that. We need to get to, to YouTube. Did you sure. have a heart out at five, or because that'll I'll ask different questions depending on how much time you got. It's, I, it's like, about ten till five. All right, like five fifteen. Okay, great. Um, so let's let's uh, then spend just a few minutes on because I've said on this show before that in my opinion the the three big IPOs of the internet era were obviously uh, Netscape, but then um, Google sort of proving to Silicon Valley but also to the world that hey. This web thing isn't over. The internet is not over. It it, it can it lives essentially. Um, experiencing it within Google, as a Google employee, um, did you guys have the sense that um, it was going to be as big as it was? That this was sort of you know the herald of of reviving the valley and things like that. So we filed our S one in um, maybe Q one. 2004, early Q2. So I had gotten there late in Q3. At that time, there were, you know, oh my God, wow, this company is making a lot of money once you're inside. Outside, you start to hear rumors. Mm -hmm. Google, Google, there's something here. Uh, April 1st, 2004, we released Gmail. People thought it was an April Fool's joke. Right, yeah. Google Maps comes out, so you start to see other aspects of this emerge, what it means to organize the world's information. And then all of a sudden, this S1 drops that has our financial information and an intent to go public. And people were astounded. At, you I know, remember very clearly, you yeah. Know, the amount, you know, the, the growth rate, what Google was doing. Uh, you still got questions of, wait, how come, why do you need 800 people, 1,000 people, 2,000 people to operate a search engine? Are they, all, are they typing in results? You know, da, da, da. But Google was investing in all these other areas. And when I got there, it was about 1,000 people. When I moved over to YouTube, you know, it was at the end of 2016 and 2007, it was 12,000. So we were doubling headcount year over year. When the S1 came out, I feel like the S1 coming out internally was a bigger day than the IPO day itself. Whereas for the rest of the Valley, the IPO day was the big day. Because internally, it was a declaration. People who had been there a while knew now, wow, you know, I'm going to be able to buy a house. This, this changes my life. Um, okay, let's get back to work. Mm -hmm. Then when the IPO occurred, that was where the general public could finally buy in and own. The retail investor could start to buy stock in this company that people had a ton of affinity for. You, you'd wear a Google t-shirt, a Google hat, not just in San Francisco, but on an airplane, and people would tell you how much they love their, you know, Love the search results. They tell you about the amazing thing it found. They tell you about you know, people. Uh, one of the ways that people would uh, assess search engine quality is a vanity search. They would type their name and see what came up. And so they would tell you how Google was the only one that found this amazing thing. They didn't even know their high school yearbook was online, and Google found it. So it wasn't even so much. It was a long tail of searches and right. vanity searches where people said, like, this is amazing. Um, Google used a non-traditional way of IPOing. Um, so Google's business was based on an auction. Advertisers could name what they wanted to pay, and then uh, uh, that was one of the factors in where they sort of showed up in the list. Um, 
And so Google also used an auction to find its IPO price. At the time, uh, there was a ton of skepticism. And in fact, it's possible that uh, the price at which Google went public, you know, the, the amount of money Google as a company got, was lower than it could have been if Google had played Wall Street's game. I was going to say, it wasn't just skepticism. There was antagonism yes. from Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, because they were losing out on the, the mar- you know, What they like to do is, oh, this, this stock is worth $100. Let's price it at $80. It'll get a pop, and we'll be able to buy the shares at $80, then give them to our preferred clients. It'll pop right away to $100. And they'll pat us on the back because we just made them 25%. Now, you go back to the web 1.0 bubble, that pop was sometimes 300%, 400%. A stock would come out at in a day. Yeah. A day. I mean, maybe even more if I think back. Like, you know, yeah. people talk about the globe and the all globe. these things. Yeah. Open at nine, close at 87, yeah. right? But we all know what happened, yeah. you know, a year or two later. So this IPO occurs uh, and it prices low. Uh, it prices people, but, you know, people start buying shares and all of a sudden, um, we have to you know, start to live up to not the expectations of what Google is today, uh, Google was in the day, but oh my God, now we have, we have the resources. People got to, I mean, we can start doubling down. We can grow, 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 grow. Yeah. And so I think people, uh, the, the, the culture didn't change dramatically. Um, Google, uh, uh, you know, many, many more people were you know, hired post-IPO than pre-IPO. Um, Google was able to retain a lot of those newly independent wealthy uh, folks for quite a while because Google, you know, if you're interested in working in data sets, where else are you going to go? Are you gonna, what are you going to get? Are you going to retire at 30? Like, stay here and work. Um, but I mean, uh, I think it was a, a, a wonderful day for technology, um, a big day for, you know, sort of San Francisco and the Valley. And, uh, you know, even though I was employee 1,000, you know, not employee 10. Um, you know, had a meaningful impact on my life as yeah. well. All right, so let, let's jump to, to YouTube. Um, I, I don't need you to tell me the, the YouTube story, obviously. Yeah. So hopefully. YouTube's a video website. <laughs> <laughs> no, right, well, and hopefully uh, uh, Chad and Steve and everybody will eventually can, can tell me that story. But I'm curious, again, for, from inside Google, um, was that uh, a controversial buy? Because Google, people forget this, but Google had its own product Google to compete video. with YouTube. Yeah. Um, so... Google doing that acquisition, that's one of their first really, really big ones. I mean, a, a billion and a half doesn't seem that big today, but um, what no, was what was the opinion of that within So um, I had some, so in 2006, the acquisition uh, was announced in fall 2006 and closed by end of the year. Um, and it was a startling amount of money for a site that people would derisively talk about it being about dogs on skateboards. Um, I had, the, I had the chance in 2006 to work with the Google Video team a bit because I, uh, under the AdSense uh, umbrella, I had been starting to see that video wasn't just a destination site experience. It wasn't just something you'd go to a YouTube or go to a Google Video, but all of the, ad, all of the sites in the AdSense network wanted video as content. If you were running an NBA, a blog about the NBA, about basketball, you were hungry for highlights. And so we um, built a product that allowed the NBA, for example, to syndicate ad-supported basketball highlights to any site that wanted to put that unit up. So it's essentially like monetizing a YouTube embed right. um, and, and, and that, sharing, that, sharing that with the site, not just with the content owner. That's what was so crucial also to YouTube's growth was that the embeddability, it's sort of the old you know, Hotmail <laughs> viral model of you know, people right. would discover it by 
oh, how did that video get on that website? Right. Oh, it's this YouTube exactly. thing. Exactly. They grew on the back. I mean, uh, uh, it was a, it was uh, MySpace especially, and it was never a significant percentage of playbacks, but it it certainly introduced people to what YouTube was. So like, MySpace at least once, if not more, tried you know, kept trying to block YouTube embeds mm. because they saw what was happening. Um, but YouTube have, had a much better technical team than MySpace did, mm -hmm. and the cat and mouse game went on for a while, and also users were outraged. They're like, wait, what is, what is the name of this company? MySpace? Yeah. I wanna put this music video on MySpace. Um, and what I saw, so from my point of view, as I was working with publishers, uh, websites, and content owners to start syndicating these clips and things, I would be looking at these, you know, the, the, the NBA sports website, and I'd say, well, hey, I've got, I've got NBA clips that you can put on here, and, and guess what? You'll even get paid to show them. And they say, that's great, but like, this isn't, this isn't the content I want. I just go to YouTube and I have all this stuff you know, that I can pull off YouTube and put it in bed, and that drive traffic. And it's like, oh man, I'm seeing this YouTube stuff everywhere. So we were all obviously aware right. uh, of YouTube's growth. Um, so Eric Schmidt, I don't, you know, it was September, October, something like that. Um, Eric Schmidt got the Google video team in a room and said something to the extent of, you know, we're about to announce that we are buying YouTube. Uh, the Google video team wasn't largely involved in that decision. Um, and said, this is, you know, it's where we're going to put our focus of video. We think Google should index video. Google can still be a place to host video, just like How, how big a, a, a motivator was that, the sense that this is a competing search? That Google, if, if you're going to organize the world's information, yeah. if you're going to be the card catalog, um, anytime there's a lot of information to be indexed. Google wants to be the one Google, doing So it. like before YouTube, they bought Blogger right? because you had a ton of websites being created. Um, so I see you know, YouTube as sort of the Blogger of video. Um, and so uh, they saw a explosive amount of content being uploaded and created. A lot of uh, uh, increasing amounts of engagement, a place you would go and go back, not just with high intent, so not just a specific video you're looking for, but low intent, entertain me, so on and so forth, which was something uh, you know a prop that wasn't a property that um, Google had. Mm -hmm. All of Google's tools were aimed at. How quickly can we get you off our website? This was one that was how long can we keep you? So mm -hmm. there were a lot of differences, and mm -hmm. I think they recognized those differences. They also knew that um, Google could start, uh, you know, with the uh, double-click acquisition, things like that. That this was going to be a place to put a large amount of display-branded advertising, which was, uh, you know, sort of the other side of the internet advertising coin, and one that um, Google hadn't had any owned and operated properties to. Put this put advertising on. Yeah. So the deal closed pretty quickly. Um, at the time, there wasn't, you know, sometimes now things go into like antitrust review, so on and so forth. Nothing like that. Uh, Google paid more than anybody else would have. Um, and starting January 1st, 2007, uh, I uh, started working at YouTube. Um, I tried to just transfer the re what got me over there. I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't known the team, I hadn't known Chad and Steve. I by the way, by over there, it, because it San was, Bruno, right? It's, it was a separate campus. It's functionally a different location and yeah. campus outside of the. So Google Chad Plus. and Steve, the founders of YouTube, and Eric Schmidt, credit to the three of them um, for really wanting to keep YouTube separate. YouTube was sixty-five people 
when it was acquired. It was very small, 18 months old. And there was the recognition that slamming this into Google under some VP who probably didn't understand YouTube anyway, um, Chad and Steve, you know, uh, had created something that needed to, needed to um, find its own way. And Eric told those guys, he said, look, you're going to have plenty of people who want to help. There's going to be a lot of folks from Google pulling on you, do this, do that, so on and so forth. I'm going to give you air cover. You tell them, you, you, you use what you need from Google and cons you know, consider us your board. You know, there's obviously oversight, but you, know, you don't have to adopt Google sign-in right away. You don't have to wholesale move all the technology over. Uh, you know, you don't, we're not putting YouTube powered by Google you know, on the logo. Like, this is a community product. Go build your community. So uh, let's, let's look at some of the things as you come over that you have to, you have to do. You have to, your, your mandate is to continue the growth, right, and to find your audience and find your community. Yeah, the way I sometimes describe it is um, I was fortunate enough. So I came over in a role where I was actually first building out sort of the APIs. Then a month later, uh, I helped start the mobile team. And then a month later, I was you know, sort of there like, can you just run product? Um, and so... The way I think about it is I inherited phosphorus. It was burning hot. Mm. And we had to figure out if we could turn that into a furnace. Could it burn long? Uh, that was along three dimensions. It was at about 100 million playbacks a day, already the largest site on the web. Um, but you know, by the time I left, sort of four and a half years later, it was at four and a half billion. So is this a consumer fad or not? How do we make sure you know, within the first year we already started progressively you know, investing heavily in mobile because we believe that that was going to be very important. So the reason there is no, the reason the YouTube of mobile is YouTube yeah. <laughs> is because of a bunch of things, including being the a default app on the first iPhone, right. which was a really interesting negotiation. Second was we started to get sued. So people think YouTube sold because it couldn't have afforded the bandwidth. It wasn't that. They, they could were. have raised money. They could have started monetizing faster. It's that nobody would have funded them to fight lawsuits. They were staring down the barrel of tons of lawsuits. A Viacom suit eventually yeah. and a bunch of others. Um, and all of which were settled or dismissed. So they said, look, we're in the right, but we can't raise a billion dollars to fight lawsuits. We could raise a billion dollars to support, you know, over a few years to support, in, you know, in a top five web property, but we can't raise a billion dollars to pay Wilson Sonsini. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and Google was willing to take that risk on. So we had to continue to invest in rights management tools, make sure that we were working um, productively with the creative community. And you're, you're largely able to solve that with software, with like um, content ID and things exactly, like that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and then the third was monetization. Mm -hmm. The first few years, up until sort of the financial crisis of 08, um, the mandate was grow users, grow users, grow users. Then, uh, you know, the global economy starts to shiver Google, in retrospect, I think Patrick Bichette, who is the CFO, even sort of uh, spoke about this internally, if not externally, once we got through. He said, look, we, we, we pumped the brakes too quickly. We were not as impacted, Google was not as impacted by 08, 09 as they had thought. But they slowed down hiring. They laid off people. They came over to YouTube and said, remember user growth? Money. Yeah. Um, so we had to, you know, but, but from early on, what Chad... Uh, was always focused on, and I think this is one reason why YouTube is still such a relevant, strong property, was one of the things Chad preached was monetization is important, not just to make us money,
but to make the creator's money. Whether you're a large media company or even more importantly, uh, a new original creator, if we're gonna help you uh, assemble a TV-sized audience, a massive TV-sized audience, you should be able to get TV dollars. And so unlike Vine, unlike Instagram, unlike a lot of these platforms that said you get paid in likes, you get paid in good feels, you, get, you go off the platform and go and do your brand integration deals, so on and so forth if you wanna get paid, we said, we're figuring out how to make sure that if you create Geargate content, we're going to send you a check. Now, is that because you guys are seeing, you made the joke that, oh, it's just uh, dogs on skateboards, but is that because you guys are seeing internally that um, licensing content from CBS is not performing as well as somebody doing something smart themselves you know, at home is, is the, performing better for the, the audience? The YouTube product team, the YouTube community team, the YouTube engineering team, all of us saw... We, we didn't make assumptions about quality or premium. That, those were words that business people and Hollywood people, Hollywood people used to denigrate YouTube because you know, they produced quality content and UGC, low quality, mm -hmm. uninteresting. Mm -hmm. We saw audiences grow. We saw people tune in multiple times a week when these creators would start to upload video for frequency. We saw people develop personalities and shows. Not 30-minute scripted content, three, five, seven-minute type stuff. And uh, we also saw that their limitation wasn't flattening growth. It wasn't, oh, this is interesting for a while, but ultimately people want to go back and watch Seinfeld. And it wasn't um, lack of creativity. It was the fact that they had to work a job mm -hmm. and max out their credit cards and do their own editing and buy their own camera. And if we could pay them, not prospectively, not here's a $10,000, make some videos, but if they knew that if they uploaded a video and it got to, you know, for every thousand playbacks, they were getting $5, $10, whatever, because of the ads, that they could quit that job, they could hire an editor, that they could actually start buy a better camera. Buy yeah. and it, so that was the playbook that we, that, you know, Chad knew instinctively, and we all saw from the AdSense world, we saw how these sites that came in as individual hobby blogs oh, right. written the in the evenings from AdSense. quit yeah. their jobs yeah. and you know, hired two more writers and grew their audience yeah. as they improved their content. So we said, this is, you know, this is no different than what we saw in AdSense. And by the way, we have you know, an ad engine that plug in here. Um, so that's where the sort of, you know, economy of YouTube came from. Now, there was, you know, there was skepticism at various points. And the fact that the Hollywood companies are difficult to deal with helped yeah. <laughs> because, you know, you'd run a pilot experiments with bad content. It, of course, wouldn't perform. They, the media companies would get mad because they think, you know, anything they produce is gold. And that would give us... Also, the underperformance would allow us to make the case to the business side of the house of like, this is not a platform about you know random clips from uh, that the studios want to provide us. In fact, if the studios are interested, what they should be doing is figuring out how to monetize when the fans upload that stuff. And so that's where Content D, Content ID came in. Instead of building a DMCA shopping cart, a takedown engine, we built a leave up tool micro-licensing where if we could automatically detect if your IP, based upon sort of 
fingerprints reference files you gave us appeared in fan videos and give you the rights holder, you, you know, Bono, if it was a U2 song, the automated choice of saying, hey, when you find this music, you know, take it down, it's or, mine. Or leave it up and Or leave paid. it up, put an ad against it and send me the check. Right. And so YouTube became, um, you know, for all of the questions around the rights issue, YouTube solved that, you know, the lawsuits were solved because the court said, no, they're following DMCA safe harbor they're not responsible because they have a process in place, repeat infringers get terminated from the site, so on and so forth. But the opportunity overall actually got solved via technology, which was, why don't we just send you a check? Real quickly, how important also was the getting YouTube on every uh, TV, getting YouTube on every phone? You know, I feel like you and Netflix both were the phone, pursuing this model the phone, at the same time. The phone was the key. So. Yeah. Apple was, so part of being, you know, you sort of referenced earlier being independent, the real interesting part of independence we had for those first two years was we did deals with Apple, Facebook, and Twitter. I mean, folks that had very different relationships with Google proper. Yeah. Um, but YouTube got to sort of think differently. And we said, look, all of this is co-opetition and we're not going to figure out a, a hundred page agreement is not going to solve this. What'll solve this is trying to figure out how to do things that we think users will like. And if the users like it, we both win. So Apple, who had already been talking to us about um, different ways to surface YouTube content, um, you know, be able to pull a clip into iMovie and edit it, you know, Final Cut Pro, like that type of stuff, came to us and said, um, there's something we wanna to talk to you about. Most of the YouTube team that worked on the API, so on and so forth, to uh, get the iPhone app ready, didn't never saw the iPhone, didn't know anything about it. There were, I think, two or three people who got to go into the safe room, you know, in Cupertino, and be like, "This is what we're talking about." Otherwise, the contract just talked about like unspecified, you know, device, you mm -hmm. know, that type of stuff. And they came and they said, "Look, you know, we're going to be releasing this iPhone." Uh, it's only going to come with the data plan. We think watching video on a phone is one of the most compelling uses of data and helps illustrate why this is special and different. And uh, there's going to be, you know, they didn't talk about an app store yet. There's going to be no third-party apps. Because they weren't doing an no, app store. No, no app store yet. Yeah. What it ships with, what it ships with. It didn't ship with copy-paste, remember? Right, like, right. It was a pretty limited device. Um, we want to we make YouTube a default app on every iPhone. We're gonna build the app though. We, we need to control the experience. Now, in some respects, you can imagine that being, they weren't gonna give on that. That was, Steve, I mean, we were talking, this was on jobs. Like mm -hmm. they were sculpting every piece of that clay. Right. Uh, I'm not sure five out of 10 or maybe even eight out of 10 or nine out of 10 Silicon Valley executives would agree to that deal. We agreed to that deal because, uh, with a multi, <laughs> with a multi-year agreement, um, because we were making a bet. Of course, we had some provisions. You know, here's what it has to include: this feature set. Da da da. You know, let's work in good faith on this. Um, we had a few beliefs. The first was that uh, the smartphone was going to be the most important device of the you know coming decade. The second was that. Um, 
the economics up until this point, if you were negotiating with carriers, you know, it was, what are you going to pay us to put you on our deck? The dollars were flowing from the content owners, from the service services to the phone companies. We saw this as an opportunity to reverse that. Break that system. And to say, this isn't going to be the only phone. We set precedent that YouTube enabled, YouTube inside, YouTube right. powered by YouTube, is a consumer expectation for these phones. We're going to have every other phone manufacturer and carrier coming to us. And you know, we'll build our device for that. Oh, and by the way, Android's happening. Right. <laughs> um, so we did the deal. Um, we launch as the you know only third-party app. Uh, the only thing to this day that pisses me off, and we you know corrected it when we didn't renew the deal and built our own app, was you know said YouTube, and it was this uh, grainy black and white TV icon. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, which was like, oh come on, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, you know, using YouTube infrastructure, we also progressively transcoded. Every, you know, we were getting hours and hours and hours of video per minute. I think now it's like 400 hours per minute upload to YouTube. Using Google Scale, we were able to retranscode every video to be available on the iPhone. Didn't happen overnight, we did it progressively. And all of a sudden, from that point on, every other smartphone that debuted, debuted with, you know, a YouTube app, a YouTube bookmark. Um, powered by YouTube or some other type of YouTube branding. Some of the early Sprint commercials would show phones, being able to play YouTube, record YouTube, upload to YouTube. It became something that consumers would you know, ask about. Hey, does this phone play YouTube? Is YouTube on this phone? I mean, they don't... And strategically for the longer term success of YouTube, as opposed to other players that have to adapt to, oh, mobile's here. You were, YouTube is there at the ground floor when mobile takes over. Yeah, so we made the right call as a team early. And then um, uh, it's inside baseball, but later on, uh, my engineering counterpart and I uh, couldn't get all the resources we wanted to double down on mobile. So we went to Andy Rubin and the Android team and sort of made the handshake of, will you give us some headcount um, if we make sure that the Android app is you know, always at parity with the site? So we couldn't control the refresh rate of the iOS app. Mm-hmm. They sort of had something that like, oh, within yeah. 180 days, you'll update this to include any major features, da, da, da. But the Android app was going to become, the YouTube on Android was sort of the flagship app. So we went to sort of Andy and said like, look, we don't have enough headcount. You know, we got to run this monetization stuff. Eric just told us we got to start making money. Like, can you, can we have some heads based, in this case, based out of like London, so it wasn't even in, in San Bruno. Can we have a few, a few heads to sort of make sure that the, you know, YouTube, YouTube, Android app, you know, is turbo, right? And so, thankfully, like that was again like mutually beneficial. It was like some inside, you know, inside Google horse trading, right? Um, and allowed us to continue to overinvest in mobile. So we were able to always invest more in mobile than uh, than the business case made sense at any given time, because we were just such true believers um, that you know this would eventually be you know, the platform for us. And it was probably the, big, you know, the biggest experiential flank that we needed to make sure you know, we closed and didn't let anybody in. Um, because if we were late, if we hadn't built you know, 
a smartphone app, maybe even if we hadn't been default, somebody else would have had an equal shot at building you know, a, a native mobile video experience that made YouTube look like you know, Web 2.0, now mobile you know, is here. And you know, that was one of the benefits of being at a place like Google where you, know, you could you know, spend, spend a little, little bit of you know, Uncle Google's money to protect your dominance. So I, I really got to let you go, but um, you met Satya, your, your partner at Homebrew, at, at Google, right? Yeah, so he had started in early 2003. Uh -huh. I started in late 2003. We spent our first year together working on that team that I referenced, um, bringing AdSense to larger publishers. And then he and I and another woman um, from that same side of the house, Katie Stanton, um, who later went on to Twitter uh, and ran media over there, we all moved over to product on the same day. So Satya and I went to work for Susan Wojcicki, um, who was one of the early, early Google folks. Uh, yeah. Google started in her garage um, to and work on uh, different sets of AdSense, project, pro AdSense products um, under, under her guidance. And then, yeah, so he, when I went over to YouTube in the beginning of 07 was when he left Google um, and uh, we remained friends and then in early 2013 started our venture fund. And Susan's now the head of YouTube. Yeah, so in a wonderful, like, circular world, uh, my first, you know, my, my first product boss at Google, you know, is now running YouTube. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, 10 years uh, after the acquisition, you know, it would be sort of 10 years this late, late this year. Um, I think people still talk about it as, you know, potentially uh, the 1.6 million, uh, 1.6 billion as the, you know, best best acquisition of all time. You know, yes, Instagram, awesome. Maybe we'll see Oculus, you know, and then people will talk about sort of, you know, the next acquisition which brought Steve Jobs back to back to, to Apple. But that was, you know, for all you know, that that wasn't a property that today is orders of magnitude larger, you know, which some, you know, if it was spun out, some of the bankers estimate, you know, it would be a eighty, hundred, hundred and twenty billion dollar, you know, company by itself. Um, and, um, you know, I have a four-year-old kid who, uh, you know, is using YouTube, you know, on her iPad and, uh, she doesn't exactly get what, you know, daddy helped make that means. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm fairly certain she'll still be using YouTube, you know, years from now when she understands what that means. <laughs> um, so last, last thing that I want to, uh, I actually knew this, but you mentioned it before we started talking, but, um, since this is a history podcast, Homebrew is not named after a oh, small batch uh, beer yeah. creation. It's named after the Homebrew right. Computer Club. So uh, it's, I'm amazed how few people, uh, but I shouldn't be given the fact that it happened in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, we did want, we started out by saying, oh, we do want a name that can, you know, suggests small batch, community made, sort of the values with which we sort of invest and work with these companies. And a lot of venture names tend to be somewhat pretentious. They seem to involve like, you know, Parts of sailboats, you know, mountaineering or Summit, that type of yeah, stuff. Right. And we want something that was a little more cheeky. So we're like, how about homebrew? Mm. Like, yeah. And I said, well, you know, also the story behind that name, um, you know, a group of PC enthusiasts during the, you know, sort of early hobbyist days, late 70s, who met on Stanford's campus um, to build PCs and talk about tech. And it's where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak met and where a lot of folks who later went on to 
you know, continue to put the silicon in Silicon Valley. And, uh, um, Gates famously wrote a letter to them saying, hey, listen, pay for software, guys. It's, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not all a free, exactly. free lunch here. Um, and so for us, it's a nod backwards, you know, uh, you know just like this podcast, uh, you know, itself is, you know, we're so focused on disruption and what comes tomorrow, but um, we're only able to think about that because we're standing on the shoulders of the people who built things before us. And so um, if we can embody a little bit of that, you know, now sort of writing checks instead of code to try to help founders who want to build the next Apple, the next Google, the next Facebook, um, you know, then boy, we're proud, proud and honored to do that. Well, and that's what I'm trying to do with the show. So thank you for coming in here and sharing your story and contributing to that process. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm pretty, I try to be pretty accessible. So um, I'm just Hunter Walk at Gmail. Yeah. Um, if, uh, if there's any, everything I can do for people or if, uh, uh, you know, I, I think part of the homebrew spirit is trying to make sure that the, you know, sort of collective information and, and access to all of us is out there. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.